Do you think ADHD is taken seriously? The first thing that people go to is everyone's over self-diagnosing and everyone thinks that they've got ADHD. We need to look at what the real problems are in terms mm. of lack of access to support, to diagnosis, to medication, to therapy. You have a lot of imposter syndrome. You've spent your whole life being gaslit. You're fine, it's not too loud, it's not too bright, you're being too sensitive. You can do it, you're just being lazy. You're going to think, oh, am I, am I actually right in my judgment? Because every other judgment I've made for the past 24 years has been wrong. One of the ladies that wrote in your book said that self-diagnosis saved her life. Our next guest is a brilliant example of what can happen when the penny drops and you grab it with both hands. Ellie's story from misdiagnosed, unemployed school dropout to autistic, ADHD, author, TEDx talker, flag bearer for her 300,000 strong neurodivergent community is an absolute inspiration. And she's done it in just two years. Let's get into it. Let's see how great minds think differently. Ellie, thank you so much for coming on The Hidden 20%. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming down south. I know it's not that far. We were in touch before you'd published your book. And now you've published your book. Congrats. Thank you. I've read it. I think it's brilliant and I wanted to just pick out, maybe start by just picking out a few things, a few choice sort of phrases and maybe if you can help listeners, watchers, etc. understand because I think there's some, yeah, some mega important stuff. First one was the lost generation. I just love the phrasing and wondered if you could, yeah, given that we're both part of that lost generation and I'm sure many people listening and watching are also part of that lost generation. Maybe you could just outline what that is. Yeah, so kind of the idea that like there's all of these conversations happening at the moment, especially in the media, of like everyone's getting diagnosed with ADHD nowadays and everyone thinks they're autistic and all this stuff. And it's like trying to explain the fact that actually, no, these people that are getting diagnosed later in life have always been autistic, have always had ADHD. They just slipped through the net, weren't diagnosed when they should have been. Um, as children so now it's kind of like yeah that lost generation of people who are now hopefully starting to find answers and get those diagnoses and it's like so yeah there's no wonder that we've got all of these people to catch up on because we were missed initially rather than it just like magically appearing out of nowhere when did let's just take autism and adhd for example because we we're we're both those things um when did they start being diagnosed like why is it now We've got these mega, like, 10-year waiting lists that you hear. Why, yeah, why is, when did that all start and why is it all now, like, suddenly a complete roadblock? Yeah, so ADHD, I find this so interesting, couldn't be diagnosed in adults until 2008. Yeah. So it's, like, literally only, yeah, under 20 years that you've actually been able to get a diagnosis as an adult. Do you know what it was, what was it before then? I think it could be, they thought that it kind of, you got to 18 and <laughs> surprise, I can do things now. I can remember things. Um, you're an adult. Yeah, you're an adult now. So you don't have that, that childish thing. Yeah. Um, but I think it's, so it's kind of a combination of that, of them not understanding that it was something that was a lifelong, the way that your brain worked, but also just, yeah, the fact that the diagnostic criteria aren't set up to account for most people's experiences. So right from the very start with both autism and ADHD, 
the people that were getting seen by the psychiatrists who were doing the research to make the criteria were, it was kind of like middle-class white families who had a naughty little boy that they didn't know what to do with. So they would take this naughty little boy, naughty little boy, to the psychiatrist. So the research was basically all done on young, white, middle-class boys. So that sort of started off the cycle of them thinking that that was the only people that could be autistic or ADHD. Um, And then fewer research kind of went outside of that area. So it's kind of this like self-perpetuating cycle of like, we think that it's only young cis white middle class boys so they're the only people that get diagnosed so that kind of ties into that but then there is also so many of people that were young white boys that were missed too so kind of doesn't make much sense (laughs) um but yeah i think it's kind of that of the the diagnostic criteria just hasn't accounted for so many people's experiences one example that i use in the book is like on the autism like the pre-screening tests that you would do to even get referred to a specialist um it's like i collect information about categories of things birds cars trains and planes and And, yeah i was like reading that when i was kind of first like looking into whether i thought i could be autistic and i was like well that doesn't really sound like me like i don't think i do do that and i was like actually that's because i'm not an eight-year-old boy like i do collect information about categories of things i become really obsessed i've never just liked anything in my life i either i'm not interested or it is my whole personality trait um but because the question is designed in a way that doesn't account for that and we're all very literal thinkers as well so i'm like well no i don't collect information about birds cars trains or planes so that doesn't yeah so that doesn't relate to me so you're sort of like discounting yourself and also being discounted from that when it's actually that that box should have had a tick from me because i do display that behavior just in a slightly different way how Um, do you think that's how do you think all of that is now changing or shifting yeah i think for me it was it's social media so if i was like reading that question on the nhs website i'm like hmm, no it doesn't really sound like me but then if i open tiktok and i see a 20 something year old woman who's quite similar to me talking about here's how i experience obsessions or special interests or hyperfixations or whatever it is and she's talking about the fact that she loves certain bands and listens to them mm. over and over again or she loves certain creators and she watches all their videos and I'm like oh yeah that is me that is me so then it's like I resonate with that experience so I'm more likely to yeah understand that that is something that I do experience rather than being like hmm, no it doesn't sound like me so I think for me that's what's it's like this access to other people's lived experience i think which is almost like this ripple effect of people see somebody else that's similar to them that is autistic that is adhd that has that assigned to them and they're like oh well that person's kind of like me um so maybe that's something that i could be as well rather than this sort of impersonal black and white Mm. list of traits that's only kind of designed to account for like young boys isn't going to resonate with that many people. From a social media perspective, where does that then trip us up and go wrong and become dangerous? Yeah, I think this is really like interesting conversation because it's like the first thing that people go to is like everyone's over self-diagnosing and everyone thinks that they've got ADHD and we don't want to like take away the legitimacy. It's like these are all really valid concerns. But I think the way that I see it is like, The worst thing, so let's take ADHD, for Mm -hmm. example. The worst thing that happens if somebody incorrectly self-diagnoses is 
they buy a few more planners. <laughs> they are a bit kinder to themselves. They might work a bit more flexibly. If they're self-diagnosing, they can't access medication. So it's not like dangerous that they may be taking the wrong medication. They can't really access any support mm -hmm. in terms of like benefits or, you know, it's not like a, a financial risk to the country. They're just going to be a bit kinder to themselves and work in ways that's more suited to them. Um, the worst thing that happens if somebody goes undiagnosed their whole life is, well, the stats around ADHD are like awful in terms of like prison rates, suicide, suicide. rates, mental health rates, you know, financial kind of risk, like really awful consequences of going undiagnosed for a long time. Um, and I'm like, well, I'd, I'd much rather take the fact that people are buying too many flowers mm. um, than than the risk of people going undiagnosed. And I think that's what's tricky about that conversation is because people kind of naturally jump to that, oh, we don't want to take away the like legitimacy. And it's like, is that the worst thing though? Because like, for me, it's worse that people are going unsupported, like undiagnosed, like unhealthy, unhappy. Um, so I, I think, yeah, it's obviously we we don't want it to take away from the how disabling it is we don't want it to become like a throwaway comment you know people are like oh i'm a bit ocd because yes. they like things to be tidy yes um but for me yeah i'd rather take that risk i think then and i think most people the vast majority of people that are self-diagnosing aren't just watching one video about forgetfulness and going oh yeah i think i must have adhd now they're watching that one video and then going on to watch a hundred other videos yes. and then going and doing the online like assessments and then talking to other people and then you know literally obsessing over it and then coming to the conclusion of like oh yeah that does sound like me but it makes i mean you you kind of looking outside in and you're like well if you if someone told you you might have to wait 10 years for a diagnosis or you might have to pay hundreds maybe even thousands of pounds then you're kind of like what are my options there yeah i don't i can't afford a private diagnosis my GP's a plonker or doesn't listen or I don't want to be on a waiting list. I am in need now. Yeah. So where I, I can gravitate to the internet and, yeah, I'm going to sort of figure it out. Yeah, definitely. I think it's like, yeah, we need to look at what the real problems are in mm. terms of lack of access to to support, to diagnosis, to medication, to therapy, to all of these things rather than oh, the dangerous internet. It's like, well, yeah, no, it's filling um, a gap of the support that you can't get from other places. One of the ladies that wrote in your book said that self-diagnosis saved her life. You know, and you're kind of like, I, I can believe it. Yeah. And I can believe it against the infrastructure and uh, conditions that are now we find ourselves in of just access to, yeah, support, diagnosis, etc. Yeah, I think like, so it's like just over two years since my ADHD diagnosis and I was really lucky and really privileged to be able to go private for that diagnosis. But if I hadn't have been able to afford that, whatever it was, £500 at that time, which is the case for a lot of people and more and more people as we're going through this cost of living crisis, I probably wouldn't still have a diagnosis now. Like I would not be sitting here doing Same. this. I would still have been on an NHS waiting list really struggling with anxiety and depression and, and low mood and all of this other stuff because like the only reason that I'm not in that position is that I had 500 pounds of disposable money that I could afford to put towards that thing and that's like that should never be the case that basically access to 500 pounds 
could be the difference between my whole life being completely different. So it's like, well, yeah, a lot of people don't have that. So what are they supposed to do? Yes. Like, yeah. My personal view is that, you know, it's not all about people getting diagnosed, but hearing you and my experience is like diagnosis was the key. It's like I was handed the keys. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll go and find the lock and I'll go and open the door and all the rest of it. But somebody handing me those keys, that was everything. Yeah. You called it a light bulb moment. You know, it's, yeah, really, it really feels like that. And so I, I, I don't know how we, well, I'll ask you, how do we speed up that diagnostic process, assessments and access? Yeah, I think it's a really tricky one as well because it's like, at the moment, you you get a diagnosis and that's, see you later, there you go. Yeah. We've given you this life-changing piece of information, good luck, um, which is obviously not great. But then you can't get through a waiting list of people without rushing them through quickly. So it's like, where do you find that balance between giving people proper support and pre and post diagnosis care, but also getting through this waiting list of people that really need to be seen. So I I mean, it's like a logistical nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> but I think because of that, it it just means that we're gonna have to accept self-diagnosis a lot more um and give people the tools to be able to to accurately self-diagnose. Um because yeah, there's no way that we can sort of magically get 10 years worth of appointments through the system. Um, so I think like peer support is really important, like communities where people can and talk to people um, and sort of explore that self-diagnosis. Because I think it is something that you you have a lot of imposter syndrome about as well, because you've spent your whole life being gaslit basically of like, no, you know, that's wrong that you're tired about this you're not that, yeah you're not you're fine it's not too loud it's not too bright you're being too sensitive um you can do it you're just being lazy so it's like there's no wonder that then you're gonna think oh am i am i actually right in my judgment because every other judgment i've made for the mm -hmm. past 24 years has been wrong um so i think it is you know you do need people around you to sort of confirm that almost it's like peer re peer reviewed um diagnosis so i think yeah peer support is really important and providing people with the tools to to come to that conclusion, but then also to support themselves. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that um, I want to really focus on is like you get that diagnosis and then there's no sort of this might help you. This is support you can access, like access to work. You can access like it's like up to 60 grand a year you yep. can get in government support, but no one tells you that. No one knows about it. So no one's accessing it. And it's like if there was just sort of a, a toolkit at the point of like, okay, we're really sorry. Like we should be able to offer you therapy, care, whatever. We can't do that right now. But here are some things that might help would at least be like a step in the right direction. Do you think ADHD is taken seriously? No, not at all. I yeah. think I think the medication shortage has like highlighted that like a million percent of like, you know, thousands of people are going without a medication that they need on a daily basis to be able to work, live regulate their emotions and it's we've just run out sorry like and you need a diagnosis yeah to be able to get that medication to get the medication um i just think if it was a i don't know a physical disability would we be in a position where we'd even got to the point of running out 
probably not because it would have been like we can't possibly make people go without this medication so I think they would have sort of stepped in before it got to the point of the shortage but also at least provided some sort of communication or alternatives in the research that they did I think it was like only 15% of people found that their GP had actually followed the guidelines and contacted them about the shortage so like 85% of people hadn't had a proper conversation with their GP he was like your medication is on like low supply you might not be able to get it this is how long it's going to be this is what you should do you know should I keep taking it every day should I ration it should I like wean myself off it nobody's even had that which I just think shows that it's like oh you'll be fine it's yeah. only a bit of you'll be a bit more hyper just don't worry about yeah, it yeah whereas like not understanding of like no that like my life is so different on and off medication what's the journey you've been on with medication and ADHD yeah so when I first got diagnosed I was kind of like I didn't go into the diagnostic process thinking that I would go on medication. It was very much more for like understanding, validation, whatever. And I was kind of like, mm, I'm not really interested in. I think I had really, um, I was very reluctant to go on medication because of the experience that I'd had with antidepressants. Mm -hmm. I was put on antidepressants at 15. By 17, I was on like the maximum dosage that a fully grown adult man can be on, which is, you know, clearly not great to happen and I couldn't get out of bed and all of this stuff so for me I was very much like I'm not I don't want to be back on medication um and then I had a friend that was going through the ADHD diagnosis process at the same time um and she was kind of in the same place and she was like I've been looking on reddit and, and everyone kind of says that it is really helpful and she's like I just feel like it would be silly for me to have gone to all of this effort to get the med uh, to get the diagnosis to not even give it a go and I was like actually you kind of like that makes sense what you're saying there. I was like, I think I might give it a go. Like if I don't like it, I can not take it. But at least I know this way. What did you believe the medication was going to do? I think I wasn't really sure. I yeah. think I'd when I'd looked online, it was people sort of saying that they could just think about one thing at a time, which <laughs> okay. yeah. I was like, that doesn't sound that's fake news. I think as well, because like the only other sort of similar experience I'd had was antidepressants mm -hmm. and that's not almost like a, a tangible difference. It's just like kind of gradually over time, things feel less intense, I mm -hmm. guess. Um, so yeah, I think I didn't really know what to expect, but I took it at like, I don't know, yeah, 8 a.m. And then within half an hour, I was on the phone to my mum crying. of like, I can just like, my brain is quiet. I can like think. Wow. This is just amazing. I don't know. Like I was like, my brain is just quiet. I, I, it was, I can just remember this. Like, I think I probably don't, like I'm used to it now, but I can remember the first thing of being like, almost like feeling like I was in like an echoey room of like, oh, this is, is this like what this people room. have, yeah. I'm like, is this what people have been having their whole lives of like, it was like the first silence, almost like, you know, when you like turn the extractor fan off after you've been cooking and you're like, ah, oh, it was like that inside no my brain. Noise. Yeah. Um, but then very strangely, that was also the day that I posted my LinkedIn post, which was like, the first post that went viral, which is like kind of what kickstarted all of this. So it's like I had 30 minutes of silence and then it was like, I've not, I've not had a quiet moment since. Um, but yeah, so I've kind of been on the same medication since then. I went up a bit in dosage and then I've come back down a bit in dosage since I've been self-employed because I kind of found, I think it's really tricky as an autistic ADHD mm. as well, because when I'm on medication, it is amazing in terms of I can do things basically like I can get started I can 
sit and work rather than I feel like when I'm not on medication, I'm it's like dragging huge weights on my feet to do anything. Everything's just hard, whereas the medication makes it just easier to do things. Um, but I also can't rest if I've taken my medication because it is this like, I'm almost like insatiable for like stimulation and work and like I need to be doing something I need to be I'm like a capitalism machine when I'm on medication like I need to be achieving something I need to be working I need to be doing something so as an autistic person that's not ideal because I need to rest um so I've kind of got to a place now where I'll take it like three or four days a week and then over the weekend I won't take it so I can actually like switch off um but I think it's a very personal choice I think a lot of people choose to go without medication I think maybe if I was like in like different places in life as well. Like I think when I go on holiday, for example, I probably will only take it like every few days just to make sure that I'm not then just like, I don't know, go and call Turkey. Turkey. <laughs> but I, it's not, if I was traveling, for example, I think at that point I probably wouldn't be on medication at that time because I don't need to be able to like work in the same way. Um, but I think definitely for like productivity, it's, I can't imagine not having it and having to do anything of any value. <laughs> You you kind of said obviously everything went crazy. You put the LinkedIn post out. Being autistic and ADHD and seeing what has happened to you in like just the being catapulted into uh, you know the media partnerships, social you know just being an author. I know you'll be such a massive inspiration to people. Tell me how this last year has felt for you not what you've done because i've given people a sense of of that but just tell me how it's felt yeah i think it's um a really difficult one because it is like balancing that like immense like gratitude and just yeah like disbelief almost of like what the actual heck is going on like my life could not be any more different like yeah three years ago i i dropped out of school so i don't have a levels had to decline my uni offers because my mental health was just I could not have left home at the time um never had a job for more than a year was like constantly in this cycle of just having awful mental health just like convinced I wasn't going to go anywhere in life because how could I when every six months I had this like awful anxiety and depression um to now like I've done a TED talk, I've written a book, like I'm doing all these amazing things. Like it is sort of that combination of, yeah, immense, immense gratitude. But it sometimes is so tricky to feel that because I get so burnt out, which makes my emotions just impossible to regulate um, and so tired. And it's like almost it's like constantly like swinging pendulum of like, I'm like, this is the best thing in the world. And I'm like, I can't do this for another day. Like I need to stop right now. I think it is a it's a really it's tricky to find that sweet spot where it's like if I don't talk about the hard times, then. I'm doing the opposite of what I've set out to do. I'm talking about let's unmask, let's be ourselves, let's like do things our way. If I'm then just being like, yeah, I achieved this and I achieved this and I achieved this, then that's not doing that. And it's sort of pushing this false narrative. Like the way that I live is not a healthy way for an autistic person to live. Like it's not normal for me to be doing the amount of stuff that I'm doing. And I do pay the consequences. Whereas if other people are seeing that I'm just doing all that and not seeing the other side, then they're like, well, I should be able to do that. And I should be able to do more things. And so it's like, I definitely don't want to have that. But then also 
I don't want it to be all doom and gloom and me crying on my stories. And like, also, I shouldn't have to prove my struggles for them to be accepted. And I think sometimes it feels like, you know, people are like, oh, but you're so like high functioning and um, you're, you know, you must have mild or like all of this just like massively incorrect stuff that is so problematic. Let's just let's just bash those down though yeah. now for, for people listening and watching. High high functioning as a term. Yeah, no. What do you think about that? Awful. Horrendous. I think basically high functioning means able to perform under capitalism. What you mean is I'm able to work, I'm able to earn money, um, and I'm able to live on my own. That's what you mean by high functioning. I'm able to do things, earn money, live alone. Which basically means I'm able to earn money yeah. and spend the money. Yeah. I think support needs like high support needs and low support needs labels are not perfect, but they're the closest thing that we've got. Yeah, I've not heard those. That's, yeah, so that's yeah. kind of what um, I see people like lean towards. If like, So I would say that I'm like a relatively low support needs, um, which is kind of objectively true that I do have lower support needs than, than people who are maybe nonverbal. But even that almost, like it can fluctuate. Like my support needs change if I'm having a really tough time. I will have to go home because I need someone to, or I won't shower for five days. I need yep. someone to remind me to eat and shower and do all of those. But the support needs need context, right? Of yeah. When you do need a lot of support, what does that mean? Yeah. How, who's involved? How much does it cost? Yeah. We as a, I don't know, a society like to kind of, we like grading people. Yeah. You know, of like, where do we put them? It's just sort of not, not helpful. Can you be mildly autistic? You cannot be mildly autistic. I think. Can it's, you be mildly ADHD? You cannot be mildly ADHD. I think like people think of the autistic spectrum, especially as like a line from a little bit autistic to incredibly autistic. And it's like, that's just not the case. It's a circle and it's like different experiences and those things like change over time. And I think in a way it's used in people who are lower support needs and higher masking. I think sometimes there can be kind of like, oh yeah, I'm I'm autistic, but I'm not like those autistic people. And it's like, no, you are. We're all we're all this we're all the same. Like, yes, those people have higher support needs. They might need they might have more difficulties, they might be disabled in more ways, but that does they're not lesser than you. I think a lot of people who are very high masking and very low support needs are getting diagnosed later in life because they've been able to kind of have the like mask and have these coping strategies to be able to go under the radar for such a long time. But that means that they've kind of grown up in this ableist society that we all live in, where it is kind of like, oh, no, you don't want to be like those people who can't work and they can't do things for themselves. Um, so that's ingrained in you. Like, I find it really hard still to admit and to accept what I can and can't do. Like, even then me saying like, oh, yeah, I just find it hard to shower. Like, that's a really hard thing to accept as a human. Like, I actually can't wash myself properly sometimes. Mm. Like, to, to admit that is really icky. It feels of like, oh, no, I, I'm fine. I'm a fully functioning human and I'm great and I can do yeah. everything. And it's like, actually, I can't. And that's okay that I can't do that. And I think when you've, yeah, grown up in a world where it is so, like, hyper-individualistic and capitalism is just everything basically yeah it's hard to um to accept that you can have support needs and rely on other people and find things difficult and also be like an equally valid human um so you can kind of see why people 
um, shy away because it's like we all need the space to be able to work through that internalized ableism. But yeah, I think with the like highs and the lows, I find it very tricky to find that balance of um, honesty without almost feeling like I like people are entitled to knowing like that mm-hmm. I I don't have to explain myself. I don't have to share the hardest moments but I kind of do to be able to like, give context to the other stuff that I'm doing. Um, so it's a work in progress. How, how much do you feel like you're on the horse and it's, it's going to go and you kind of got to just stay on? I think it's a really weird one as I'm like, obviously the same time that my career and social media has gone like this I'm also trying to navigate unmasking and like who actually am I and what do I actually want from life and what am I actually capable and of and what do I actually enjoy and yeah who am I basically um and those two things are like kind of very opposing directions like everyone's like yeah just like make the most of it and do all these things and start a podcast and write more books and be on tv and do all of these things like you know and like yeah enjoy the kind of mm upwards progress of the career but then I've got like my actual sort of feelings is like I need to be doing so much less I need to rest like I couldn't go but I was invited to like a big music streaming platform had like an end of year party last week and I couldn't go anyway because I already had plans but I was like oh that's like that's amazing I can't believe you've invited me there like that's so cool um and then I was like actually it'd be so loud I wouldn't know anyone there. I'd have to make small talk with strangers. There'd be flashing lights. I wouldn't know what, like, there'd be no rules. It's sort of like a party of, like, well, what time am I supposed to actually arrive? Yep. Who am I supposed to talk to? When can I leave? What do I, how do I behave? What do you wear? Yeah, all of these things. Like, in reality, I probably wouldn't have enjoyed it very much, but you think that you should be doing it because it's a cool thing that people would love to be invited to and all of that stuff. You have to really stop and be like, do I want to do this thing? Or am I, especially as an ADHD, it's dopamine. I'm sure. like, oh yeah, sounds amazing. Like, let's great and let's do it. And then I'm like, why am, why am I doing that thing? I actually really don't want to do that. It's kind of a, a, a battle between like clinging on for dear life and yeah, being really grateful and making the most of it. And, and also like, being really grateful for that opportunity to change perceptions and make a difference. It's not just about me getting to do the shiny things. It's about our community getting a voice and being listened to and, and being represented. Um, do you feel a responsibility to do that? I do. It's a very, again, a very tricky one to navigate and balance because it's like um, I am very aware of the fact that I'm very high masking and why um i i've got pretty privileged so it's like that kind of comes with the responsibility to like open the doorways but it's also like don't just have me here don't just listen to me also listen to all of these people over here as well they've all got much more important things than i have to say you know they've you know people of color have been massively like let down by the system um trans people, queer people, people with co-occurring disabilities, like all of these things, people with high support needs, non-verbal autistic people, like they need listening to as well, using that privilege of being high masking, palatable, white, all of these things, but also then finding ways to be able to raise other voices. So I think that was like, the book was a really nice place to be able to do that, to be able to include different people. Um, I think as I hopefully organize my time better and have time to like get on mastering a bit more i'd love that to be a platform that's not just 
my videos it's all sorts of people's videos and posts and and writing and stuff like that to kind of represent yeah more of the of the community but um yeah it's a real a real tricky one and I think as well with that it's like I am aware of the fact that my success or like yeah whatever it is is kind of dependent on my masking like if I was on stage and I was like I don't know really visibly stimming I was like rocking backwards and forwards I was talking in a really or I wasn't able to speak Mm -hmm. um I was like yeah talking a really blunt way uh not sort of making eye contact at all although (laughs) very minimal anyway but if I was more visibly unmasked I wouldn't get listened to in the same way yeah I'm like my whole thing is like unmasking but i'm having to mask to get that but, message of unmasking across but and you, you correct me if i'm wrong here it's not um it's not just a simple costume change yeah, right no. it's, it's not like a i've got all my little masking tools here <laughs> and i just put them all on or i take them all off yeah um yeah we were talking about i don't know whether it's legs going nuts or you know you with a stim toy to me that is they're all pieces of the puzzle of unmasking because if you were totally masking then and i was then i would be sat properly not squirming around not doing silly things with my feet or my eyes and you wouldn't be fidgeting with your hands and we'd both not have anything in our hands so i I give yourself a little break on that it's like baby steps (laughs) yeah it is and i I, and i'm saying that partly because that's what i guess i'm trying to do as well to gradually go well i can be really blunt and actually that can be okay like people then know why i'm blunt and they become more used to it and they and they allow me a a bit more permission to be blunt because they know why it's happening or people that i work with now i'm not going to the christmas drinks and it was acknowledged uh that i probably didn't want to go yeah and that i think is it's so cool it's like you know bella and charlie who work on the podcast it's like let's get a let's get a timer so that i'm not distracted by someone waving at me and i'm not checking my watch and i'm not worried and anxious about whether we're going over all those little things i guess all help um but i i hear your like I hear your battle of masking, unmasking, social media, not social media, putting the word out and sort of flying the flag for the for the neurodivergent community and for unmasked for your community and needing to needing to mask to do yeah. that. Yeah, it's that like authenticity, but like it's still a job at the end of the day. Like yep. it, I don't have to show you what I'm like at home when I'm completely unmasked but I think the knowledge of that existing is important for the people that follow me to yeah so I don't come across as one of those like oh yeah I'm I'm disabled but I'm not that disabled or, yes. or I've, I'm I've not like it all out yeah I know and what I'm, I'm doing yeah. exactly and I'm I'm totally fine actually yeah um I think it's the acknowledgement and as you say it's the acknowledgement that it's not just about you and it's about representation you know, across you know, 
other conditions and all of the other minorities that are not being represented. Yeah, I just, I hear, I think your your struggle is real, Ellie. And uh, I think the most important thing is that it's brilliant that you share that and acknowledge that, that there's this trade-off and there's compromises because, yeah, that's real rather than, hey, you need to see me at my worst to understand that I am not perfect. Yeah, I think it's I think it's like a big it's like the ADHD autism sort of who's in charge. Yeah, almost uh sort of like I've got a toddler inside of me as well. It's like I kind of know what's best. I know that I need to take a step back. I know that I need to rest. I know that I need to do all of these things and then I've just but, got But correct sorry to interrupt you, but correct me if I'm wrong. You know that now, but I'm guessing you didn't know that pre-diagnosis oh no not all I just used to my life was basically a cycle of run myself into the absolute ground be unwell recover go again (laughs) and I think I'm still in that cycle but at least I'm sort of conscious of it now and I know that it's happening um and it's I think hopefully getting less like severe like less low lows and less frequent as well I guess the most kind of obvious now looking back example was like every school holidays I can feel it now my throat's going because my 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 body knows that it's like almost Christmas but every single school holidays I would be unwell like physically I'd like lose my voice I'd be like ill I'd be run down because it was like the whole school term I'd be like going 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 like obviously school is not great for undiagnosed any neurodivergent person Uh, and I'd be doing all these extra things I'd be going to my dance classes and I'd be doing seeing my friends and doing all this stuff and I'd be going, going, going. And then it's like, I would finally stop and my body would just be like, what the heck has just happened in the last six weeks? Crumble. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, I definitely was like unaware of that cycle that I was in. And I think, yeah, I think the, the obviously understanding is a massive part and not like, and knowing why the crash comes. Cause before I think it was just like, oh no, I'm like, my depression's back, my anxiety's back, I'm in a really bad place, like the world's going to end, not knowing like why do I feel so horrendous and almost feeling guilt for feeling that bad as well because I think that was a lot of it, um, like when my mental health was at its worst, it was like sort of feeling a bit like ungrateful. Like I know that that's, that's not how mental health works, that you have to have like, air quotes, a reason to be unhappy. Yeah. But for me, it was like, I'm doing well at school, I've never wanted for anything, I've got a family that love and support me, like why do I feel so awful all the time? Um, Whereas now I'm like, oh, I'm just really tired. Like I've just Mm. done too much. I've just like worn myself out. I feel like I I have a choice that I can run myself into the ground and choose to do that. If I want to get loads done, be in London lots, do lots of talking, I know... And, and then have a period of rest after it. I kind of feel like empowered now that I have the freedom of choice to do that. Thankfully, in the simplest way I view my own brain is I've got an accelerator and a brake and my ADHD is a, is a foot, foot on the floor accelerator and being autistic is, is an absolute brake because I want process and system and analysis and routine and structure and no risk and order you know and then 
my ADHD is like, no, I want risk, chaos, pace, impatience, danger, you know, give it to me all fast. Now. Now. (laughs) (laughs) Yesterday. And again. Yeah. And I want it again and again and again. Um, You said, which I loved, um, that you've learned to work with your brain, not against it. Yeah. I I thought that was a really kind thing to say to yourself yeah I think it's like I think that's like the biggest thing that I've especially with ADHD I think it's just like if you try and like fight you're never gonna win (laughs) so like it's just not gonna happen so if you sort of like go with the like path of least resistance like even things like I don't know one example I saw was like if you always leave your clothes like on the chair in your bedroom or whatever just put a basket on the chair so it's like at least they're not as messy on the chair but they're in the basket but don't tell yourself I'm going to start putting them in the wardrobe because you're not you're not going to start if you were going to put them in the wardrobe you would have been doing it the whole time they wouldn't be on the chair so I think it is that of sort of like taking the fights that you want to take and I think that's really I think it's really great for people to hear if someone's listening and struggling or maybe self-diagnosing or just in that you know tricky time what advice would you give what yeah what would you say I think if and where possible like finding your people is that's the thing that has got me through everything of like I now have a place to belong a friendship group to belong to that's mostly online it's mostly like a group chat it's mostly texting my friends rather than being in physical spaces but just knowing that I have people around me that get it um and that love me as I am rather than for someone that I feel like I need to be in their presence is like the best thing to come out of all of this I've like I'd never sort of had any sort of solid friendship groups I had an awful time at school like I like yeah I've never had that space Mm. of like oh these people love me for me um and I think finding that is the best thing to come of all this so yeah if you can access spaces where other neurodivergent people are whether that's online whether that's locally whether that's in person like yeah finding people that get it I think is the the best thing and like I think it's so much like additional energy to always be explaining why you're feeling a certain way whereas like you can just do it without having to explain and that's okay But yeah, I think that would be my thing of find your people. Find your people like that. What have you brought uh, to put on the shelf? I brought my book, um, which came out just over a month ago. Um, But yeah, it's probably my proudest piece of work. I think this just kind of made everything feel a bit real. And I think like as someone that dropped out of school, has no qualifications, would never have thought that writing a book was something that I would do. Um, So I think it is like a, it's like a, you did that. You did that it's moment. It's a real thing. Yeah. So brought a copy and hopefully I'll have helpful tips in for anyone I mean, look comes. at it from a <laughs> colour perspective. It's bang on. It's perfect. Ellie, thanks so much. Just thank you for everything that you're doing because it's really important and in the nice possible way, you really do have a responsibility to sort of fly the flag and keep flying it Uh in a way that works for you. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Hidden 
If you're still knocking about, then let me introduce you to the band. First up, main man on the mic, host Ben Branson, our wonderful producer, Bella Neal, and the man who'll probably try and cut this bit, video editor James Scriven. Not forgetting our wondrous theme tune by Jackson Greenberg. Lovers or haters, we want to know, so be sure to leave a review wherever you're listening. For the lovers amongst you, you'll find us on TikTok and Instagram at Hidden20Podcast or over on Hidden20.org where you can join our mailing list. <laughs>